Well, we've been going through the Gospel of John together here on Sunday mornings. Um, Our passage today will take us up to the end of chapter 3. So when today is over, we can say we have made it through three chapters of John's Gospel in just, you know, two months or so. So that gives you a sense of the trajectory that we're on. Um, There is a lot of rich uh, material and truth here for us to find, and of course, John's purpose for writing this gospel, again, is to convince his readers that Jesus Christ is the Christ, the Messiah, the sent one, the anointed one, the one sent by God uh, to redeem the world, and the Son of God. So not just an interesting guy, not just a good teacher, not just a very moral person, but God in human flesh. Uh, This is a central truth, of course, of the Christian faith. And John, the gospel writer, gives us uh, evidence after evidence after evidence throughout this gospel uh, that Jesus is the Son of God. And he makes all these claims about himself, and then John is going to show us over and over. He backs those claims up. He demonstrates himself to be who he says that he is. So last week we looked at uh, Jesus' conversation with a, a rabbi, a Pharisee, by the name of Nicodemus, who came to him under the cover of night, and asked him questions about really who Jesus was. We know that you're from God because nobody could do the things that you do if God were not with him. And uh, and Jesus answers this basic inquiry about, so who are you, uh, by diving deep into Nicodemus' spiritual condition, and truly the spiritual condition of all human beings apart from Christ, that you, unless you are born again... You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And so we saw Jesus kind of upend uh, the the Jewish understanding of following God's law and and making their way to God based on their obedience. Uh, He says, no, it's about getting a new heart. It's about having your life totally renewed from the inside out by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so today we find uh, Jesus going out into uh, the eastern kind of rural part outside of Jerusalem Uh, to do some baptizing. And so we pick up the story in verse 22 of John chapter 3. If you're using uh, the story ESV Bible that we've provided for you, this is on page 737. All right? John chapter 3. I'm going to read for you the first few verses of this, and then we'll kind of walk uh, section by section through the story. John chapter 3, verse 22. After this, that is after, sometime after his conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Okay, we'll stop there for now. This is just the setting. Right? So every good story has a setting where the events take place. And then there's a conflict where something goes wrong or there's some tension. And then there's a resolution where that tension is dealt with in some way and resolved. And so the setting here is in the eastern part of the Judean countryside, it tells us. So this is somewhere east of Jerusalem, uh, not quite to the Jordan River. Uh, and Jesus and his disciples have gone uh, to baptize. Now, apparently Jesus himself is not actually baptizing people because if you look down at the beginning of chapter 4, 
Uh, verse 1 and 2 tell, tell us specifically, Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. So we don't know exactly why it is that Jesus is not doing baptisms himself, but do you, do you think maybe there's some wisdom in that? Can you imagine the kind of like just elitism and arrogance and kind of sectarian things that could evolve? If somebody could say, well, I was baptized by Jesus himself, right? So I think there might be some wisdom in the fact that Jesus lets his disciples do the baptizing. Then he's not baptizing people himself. Uh, but nevertheless, it, John doesn't tell us very much about that. So Jesus and his disciples are doing baptisms, all right? And we also find out that John, the Baptist, that's the name he's been given. He wasn't actually the first, like, Southern Baptist or anything like that. He was the baptizer, right? So he's also baptizing, as he's been doing. Of course, remember, John's ministry, John the Baptist's ministry is to prepare the way for Jesus, to announce that the Messiah is here. So remember back in chapter 1, we read about John pointing to Jesus and saying, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so this is what John has been doing. So now we have this sort of parallel baptism ministry where John the Baptist and Jesus and his disciples are actually in at least relatively the same area baptizing people. Uh, and this is the only of the four Gospels that gives us that glimpse into this sort of simultaneous period of ministry. So uh, in Mark, for example, uh, Mark, and Luke, Mark and Luke, excuse me, both jump straight from Jesus' baptism by John uh, to uh, John's imprisonment uh, by King Herod. Mark 1.14 tells us that when Jesus learned about John's imprisonment, he went north to Galilee. Uh, to carry on his ministry there. So it's really only John's gospel that shows us this period of time where Jesus and John are enjoying a period of kind of, you know, side-by-side, side, if you will, ministry in baptizing uh, people and, and welcoming people to repent of their sins and, and come to him for uh, purification. Now, the conflict arises, in fact, over that very matter, the matter of purification, and so we find in verse 25 that a discussion arises. Let's look there, verse 25. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Now, again, we don't get the specific details of what this debate was, what exactly about purification that they were confused about, but it might have something to do with the nature of baptism and the difference if there was one, between John's baptism and Jesus' baptism. Because the way that they handled this debate is by coming to John and asking him uh, what he thinks. And so in verse 26, they come to John and they say to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, so that's hearkening back to chapter 1 where John had said, I'm here to bear witness to, to Jesus. He who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing. And all are going to him. Right? So that other guy, they don't even name Jesus, which I think is interesting. Remember that guy that you talked about, that you said you were here to bear witness to, that was at the Jordan? Remember him? Well, he's over there baptizing people right now. And people are going to him. Right? People are leaving your ministry, John, and going over to Jesus, to be baptized by his disciples and be a part of his ministry. What's the deal? So here we go. The issue starts to come into focus. John, Jesus is stealing our people, right? Your followers are leaving and going to Jesus. He has more people than you, right? His ministry is getting more popular. 
It's got more going for it than you do. Now, this, this shows us, of course, the, the loyalty and affection that John's disciples seem to have for him. But I think it also maybe displays a little bit of envy. Now, you see that at work here? When, what the law of Moses might call covetousness. Remember that uh, the, the, the Tenth Commandment that says, do not covet your neighbor's house or wife or whatever uh, else? That means to look at what some, something that someone else has and to think in your heart, I want that. I wish that were mine, right? So that's, that might be what's going on here. And so John's disciples, and these are ministry-minded people, right? They are working with John, baptizing people, welcoming people to repent of sins and find purification in life, right? And they're looking at Jesus' ministry and going, hey, hang on a second. He's the new guy in town, right? We're, we've been here. We've got this established ministry. We've been baptizing people here in the Jordan and all over the place. And now this guy comes along, and he's going to take everybody for himself. Friends, there is no room for territorialism in the kingdom of God. Among churches and organizations that are preaching the gospel, reaching into their community with love and truth, and drawing people into Christian community, there simply is no room for envy and covetousness. And I think we see that uh, on the part of John's disciples here. Yet how frequently do churches struggle with this? Anybody been in a church where you felt a little bit of a, like, almost a competition going on with other churches. Like, we got to kind of do things a little bit better, or, oh no, this person went over there, what can we do to woo them back, right? This kind of... Pastors are the worst about this. So, as a pastor, I can totally confess and attest to the near-constant temptation toward comparison and competition with other pastors and ministries. Is that pastor more gifted than I am? Why does that church have more resources than ours does? So it's there. The temptation is there all the time. And as a church plant, like we're new, we're young, we're small, we're in a school, right? I, I think there's some good, there's a good word of caution for us here. Man, that church has a rocking children's program down the street. Wouldn't it be nice if we had, you know, more people? Man, I wish our church had a building, you know, with chairs and signs and sound equipment that was already set up. And ready to go, that I didn't have to show up early and get it all set up, I think. There's ways, there's opportunities for this, this little root of envy, jealousy, covetousness to sort of arise, even as we're looking at other churches and ministries within the region. Well, John's answer to his envious disciples will tell us exactly why this mindset and this struggle is so problematic. Because it's one thing to just say, don't be jealous, don't be envious. Right? But John is going to get to the root of why that's a problem in his response uh, to his disciples. So look there in verse 27. So they've said, all, this guy's baptizing and all are going to him. And John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. There's his response. You don't get anything if God doesn't give it to you. Do you see it there? Everything that you have is from God. Yes, everything. He says not even one thing is a person can have unless it is given to him by God. And that certainly has application within the world of, of churches and ministries and, and kingdom outposts like where we're all working for the same goal and God gives grace and resource and people and entrusts churches and, and organizations and ministries with certain gifts and, and resources, right? 
And so, uh, so if we are to say what we have is not enough, what are we, what are we doing? We're grumbling against God, right? This application certainly uh, goes far beyond the realm of churches and ministry. I mean, you can look at your own life, your own situation, and your own heart and, and see this stuff popping up all the time. Why don't I have more money? Why don't I have a better job? Why don't I have a nicer husband? Why isn't my home as nice as my neighbor's? Right? There's all kinds of ways that this kind of envy can start to creep up. The ugly truth is that when I lust after resources and relationships that God has entrusted to someone else, I am raising my fist at God and saying, the gifts you gave me are inadequate. I am saying to God, I think you could do a better job providing for me. Isn't that what we're saying when we're envious of what someone else has? God, could you step up your game a little bit? Give me just a little bit more. Give me just a little bit more influence, a little bit more money, a little bit more happiness, whatever it is, right? I hope you can see the arrogance and ingratitude that's inherent in such an attitude toward our Father. And so the work of a follower of Jesus is to learn contentment with what we've been given and to learn to steward it for the glory of God to the very best of our ability. Lord, thank you for the people that you've brought into the imprint community. Lord, thank you for this elementary school cafeteria and the teacher's lounge that you've allowed us to use for worship and instruction each week. Lord, thank you for the financial resources to purchase sound gear, signs, nursery equipment, podiums, coffee pots, insurance, websites, and the like. And Lord, please help us to use these resources to advance the kingdom of Jesus, to make disciples and to bring glory to you in Baltimore and beyond. That's, that's the heart of, of a, a ministry, of, of a church community that is serving Jesus humbly and without competition and territorialism. And we, we should hope for the success of other uh, ministries and churches in the area. And in fact, John is going to make that very clear to us as he continues. Look in verse 28. He says, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He's just saying, you just said, do you remember that I bore witness to him? All, I'm, all I said at that point was, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not all that. I'm just here to bear witness to him, to point toward him. The one, verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. I'm going to stop right there. We'll, we'll come back to that in just a second. So he says, I am not the Christ. I'm just a witness for him. So in other words, you're concerned that all these disciples are leaving our ministry and joining Jesus and his disciples and being baptized by him. And he's saying, this is only fitting. It is necessary. It is right. It is good for people to leave my ministry and join his. That's what the Baptist is saying here. And so John doesn't merely refrain from griping about his ministry and influence being overshadowed by that of Jesus. He, he celebrates it. And then he's going to give us this analogy of a wedding. Check this out in verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom who stands, uh, excuse me, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So in this analogy, Jesus is the groom. 
the people flocking to Jesus in his ministry are the bride. And John the Baptist is kind of like the best man. He's just standing by and watching the bride come for the groom, right? And his joy is complete. He rejoices greatly at the, the joy of his master, at the joy of the groom receiving this bride. So short of, of griping, not only does he not complain and go, oh man, my ministry is failing, what can I do to get some of those converts to Jesus back over here to my ministry? He doesn't just not complain. He is celebrating Jesus. He is seeing people leave his ministry and go over to Jesus, and he's saying, my joy is complete. This is exactly what I came to do. He must increase. I must decrease. John, how are you being so cool about this? Because there's no greater joy than seeing Jesus honored. There's no higher fulfillment than, than playing the part in pointing people to Jesus that God has appointed you to play and then fading out of view and watching people find new life in him. He must increase. I must decrease. This is how it was designed to be. This is necessary. John, don't you care that your disciples are starting to abandon you and follow Jesus? Well, of course I care. I'm delighted. That's the reason God put me here, to bear witness to the true light. Hold him that in chapter 1. To point people toward the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and then to simply fade out of view. Oh, may this become our heart. May this become my heart. This is, this is, a, this is an effort. This is work. For us to do in our hearts. May our delight in Jesus grow to be so deep and rich that we can imagine no greater purpose in our lives, no greater ministry than helping others to know and follow him. If I'm making disciples of Kyle, I have failed. That is not what we're here to do. We are here to make disciples of Jesus Christ. So pointing people to Christ, leading people to him, helping people understand how they can themselves relate to God through their faith in Christ and have him help them through their burdens in the journey of life. That is what the ministry of disciple-making is really all about. That's how we will leave an imprint in our community, is just by pointing to him and going, he's where it's at. Not this, not imprint, not some church. It's all about Jesus. Well, in the last few verses of this uh, section, John the Baptizer uh, gives kind of his final testimony, if you will, to the true nature of Jesus' person and ministry. And sometime shortly after this, he will be imprisoned and then eventually executed by uh, this pagan ruler, Herod Antipas. Let's read the final uh, handful of verses here, starting in verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, 
but the wrath of God remains on him. So, he who comes from above is above all. A little play on words there. He's speaking, of course, of Jesus, this one he's been bearing witness to throughout his ministry. And now as his disciples are coming to him with this gripe that his people are leaving and going to Jesus, he says, listen, Jesus is above all. He's from above and he's above all. So he came from heaven. He brought his light into the world and there is none greater than him. There is none that we should listen to or pursue or seek or love or worship than him. And he contrasts this kind of heavenly way and message of Jesus with, with the earthly, you know, he who is of the earth speaks in an earthly way. And so he's kind of talking about himself and really any of us. Like we're just earthly people. We're from the earth. All we know is the earth. But he comes from heaven. And so he bears witness to us. He says there in verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Well, where has he been? He's been in heaven. So he has seen and heard things that we have not even imagined. And he comes and he utters the words of God. Tells us that in verse 34. How do we know that what he says is from God? Well, he tells us that God has given him the Holy Spirit without measure. That is, Jesus is fully anointed with the presence of God's Spirit to equip him for his mission on earth. So when he says there that he gives the Spirit without measure, I don't think he's saying that, that Jesus gives the Spirit to us, which that happens later and in the life of a Christian, I do believe that when you trust Christ, you do receive the Spirit. But what he's talking about right here is the unique qualification of Jesus to speak the words of God because he has been given the Holy Spirit without measure, in its fullness, in his fullness. He speaks the words of God by the Holy Spirit. So he's just, put, again, painting this picture. Jesus is high and exalted. He knows everything. He is he is bearing witness to the heavenly things that he has seen and heard. He is uttering to us the very words of God because he has the very presence of God's Holy Spirit on his life. In verse 32, he talks about the response to Jesus, and it echoes what we saw at the beginning of John's Gospel in chapter 1, uh, where it said, verses 10 and 11, that Jesus brought his light into the world, but the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And so he says that same kind of thing in verse 32. He bears witness to what he's seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. So even though Jesus has all of the uniqueness and the qualifications to speak the very heart of God, people don't hear it. People don't believe it. People brush him off and go, I don't care, or I think he's crazy. Or, yeah, maybe he's a good teacher, but he's not more than that. But then he gives a little bit of, of hope, a little glimmer. Because he says, but the one who does receive his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Now, in those days, a letter of great personal importance would be sealed with a wax emblem uh, that identified the sender and kept the, the content of the letter safely concealed until it reached its intended recipient. And so there's the, he gives the idea of this kind of wax seal. It's like this letter is complete and protected and delivered to its recipient. So when a person receives the testimony of Christ, he is setting his seal to the truthfulness of God. 
He is setting his seal to the fact that God's word is true and that Jesus is who he says he is. It's, it's a commitment of belief. I recognize Jesus to be who he claims to be. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he came into the world for the salvation of sinners like me. And I trust in his life, death, and resurrection for an eternal relationship with God. John closes his testimony with this promise in verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Which really is an echo of what Jesus himself had said to Nicodemus up in verse 15 and 16. Where he said, the Son of Man must be lifted up, and whoever looks to him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever should believe in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And so the good news offer of new life in Jesus Christ comes back at the end of John the Baptist's ministry and this final testimony, and this is the last thing he wants you to hear. If you believe in the Son, you will have eternal life. So how about you? Have you set your seal on the truth of Jesus? Have you made the commitment to believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Are you resting your life and eternity in the finished work of his life and death and resurrection? If you haven't done that, don't leave here today without getting that settled before you, between you and God. Admit to him that you're a sinner in need of salvation. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. I believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Romans 10, 9 says, you will be saved. And so just as John the Baptist points to Jesus and calls him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and promises if you believe in the Son, you will have eternal life. The offer still stands. It's still held out to us today that if we will place our lives in his hands, if we will place our soul and our eternity upon the finished work of Jesus Christ and his life and death and resurrection, we can be saved and have eternal life. Let's pray again. Lord, we thank you for the good news that there is life available in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the hope that if we will trust in what Jesus has done in his sinless life, and in his death in our place on a cross, and in his victorious resurrection from the grave, that we would be counted righteous with him, that we would be seen as holy and as right before you, declared right, no longer seen as a sinner, no longer seen as um, missing the mark or lower than the standard. Lord, I pray that for each of us in this room that the truth of who Jesus Christ is and the truth of what he accomplished in his life and death and resurrection would be the ground of our confidence with you, would be the source of all hope and strength and comfort that we find in this life, and would be the very basis for the way that we live our lives, the decisions that we make, the relationships that we nurture and develop, the way we speak, the way we relate to others. And Lord, I pray that our heart would be just like that of John the Baptist, where we, we would say, our desire is not for our own 
glory or influence. Our desire is to see people trust Christ. And that you would use us, Lord, to point people to Jesus. To introduce them to Jesus as the one who can repair their broken lives and restore hope and a future where there seems to be no hope. So Lord, we pray that you would work this way in our lives and through our lives for your glory and for the good of Baltimore and beyond. In Jesus' name, amen.